Good evening. Tonight we continue our series on the book of Malachi. And uh, here we find that the people of Israel were questioning whether there was any value in worshiping and serving the Lord. At this point in time, they had become very disillusioned with their faith. They had grown to a place where they had little trust in the Lord. And so the charge is that the children of Israel have been very critical of God. Rather than welcoming or even accepting God's reproof, instead they found fault with God. Malachi 3.13, your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, how have we spoken against you? Or as translated by the NAS, your words have been arrogant against me. Or the NIV, you have said harsh things against me. A colloquial way of translating this would be, you have given me a hard time. You are striving against me. You're finding fault. Of course, they plead innocence. Verse 13, how have we spoken against you? Well, it's important to realize that they are saying these things probably not in a formal setting, but rather an informal setting. That is, it is not going to be what the priests would say in their formal teaching but rather the way in which the priests and people would talk informally among themselves, in the daily routine, in their assessment of life. So these words were the kind of conversations that they were having among themselves. Basically, the people were griping against the Lord. So the case is set forth. You have said it is vain to serve the Lord, What is the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? So first, we'll look at all three of these. First, people have said that there is no benefit in walking in God's commands. You have said it is vain to serve God. The serving that is in view most likely is in their proclaimed allegiance to God. They are referring to to themselves as servants of God. The point is they see no value in the efforts that they have put forth in obeying God's word. They've seen that as being vain, empty, meaningless. However, they fail to see the reality that they have not been obeying God's word. This may be due to the blindness they have manifested with respect to their unfaithfulness to the Lord. Number one, for example, Going back two weeks ago, for example, they had been blind to their having robbed the Lord in their tithes and offerings. Will man rob God, yet you are robbing me? But you say, how have we robbed you? Answer, in your tithes and contributions. Consequently, they failed to realize that the hardships they were encountering were due to their unfaithfulness. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe in the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. And thereby put me to the test, says the Lord, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. But they had been hungry. They had been uh, dissatisfied. They had not had what they had expected. And so they become disillusioned. 
What is our point in serving God for we're starving, we're doing without? But God said the reason they were starving was because of their unfaithfulness, because they had robbed God. Likewise, uh, he rebuked the priests earlier by saying that they had been partial in what they had taught from God's word. They were leaving big sections out. Thus the people became uh, ignorant of what God's word had to say. And as a result, they found fault with God. However, they fail to recognize how their own sinfulness has contributed to the misery of their lives. They were charging God with unfaithfulness when it was they who were being faithful. What we're going to see here is that they are right to look at their lives and see them as vain, meaningless, disillusioned, disappointed in their worship. But the problem wasn't in God, the problem was in them. It was in their worship. The same thing happens today. Um, many times, people will look at their sinful decisions and then either charge God with unfaithfulness because of all the problems that they are experiencing in their life, failing to recognize that it was their own decisions that landed them in the boat that they are in, or they ascribe it to bad luck. Okay, I did all these things, and now look at how it's turned out. What unfortunate bad luck. What is more disturbing is that people may not even realize that the decisions that they have made are sinful decisions for the very same reasons that the Israelites didn't recognize it. That is because the word of God was being taught in a partial way. That it wasn't being taught in its completeness or in its fullness. I just read uh, the latest Barna notes on church attendance and all these different things. And one of the uh, statements that I saw that was kind of alarming to me is that 46%, that's obviously less than half, 46% of people that attend church say they go to church in order to learn more about the Bible or Jesus. That means the majority of people don't go to the church to learn about the Bible or learn about Jesus. That's going to have its ramifications. That's going to have its outworking in people's lives. If people aren't interested in knowing more about Jesus or knowing more about the Bible, obviously they're not going to have great moral decisions. One of the other statistics that really blew me away is that only one-third of the people saw the pastor as a legitimate source for moral instruction. That means two-thirds of the people didn't think that the pastor was going to be very helpful in teaching them morality. That's going to have its consequences. That's going to have its outcome. If people are going to choose a lifestyle that goes contrary to God's word, you can't raise your fist against God and say, God, you don't keep your promises. My life is miserable. Well, if you're making these kinds of decisions, your life is going to be miserable. Number two, 
The priests have said there is nothing to gain in performing their priestly duties. Malachi 3.14, you have said it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping the charge? Uh, here it is their, their, uh, their duties, their responsibilities as priests. The priests had grown tired of fulfilling priestly duties. But you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted and its fruit. That is, its fruit may be despised. But you say, what a weariness this is. And you snort at it, says Lord of hosts, that people get tired. The priests are tired of their service for God. Rather than be vital, rather than see it as a privilege, rather than see it as a joy, they see it as a hardship, a difficulty. You snort at the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or sick, and you bring that as your offering. Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? God had said it would have been better to abandon their worship than to worship in the manner that they were worshiping. This is a review, Malachi 1.10. Oh, that there were one among you that would shut the doors. It would be better to not worship at all than to be worshiping the way that they would worship. That's not how they thought, and quite frankly, it's not how people view things today. Most people think, as long as you're going to church, <laughs> you're better off going to church than not going to church, whatever that church is, whatever it teaches. At least they're going to church. That was the view. At least we're going to the temple. At least we are offering sacrifices. At least we're being religious. God said it would be better if you didn't. Now, why would God say that? Why would God say it would be better not to go than to go to a worship like that? The answer is found in verse 10. Well, that there, there were men among you that would shut the doors that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. In vain. Now go back to the top of the page under Roman numeral two and look at Malachi 3.14. You have said it is vain to serve God. They were right. What they were doing was in vain. It was meaningless. It was insignificant. It was not having the kind of effect that they anticipated. God said it was going to be in vain because God wasn't going to bless that. And why it would have been better to shut the doors is because they are ascribing the lack of benefit in their lives as being God's fault. We are going to this false and imperfect worship. It's not benefiting us at all. What's wrong with you, God? As opposed to recognizing what's wrong with our worship. I have said many times that we are in a post-Christian era. Again, from this Barna, he said four out of 10 Christians could be identified as post-Christian Christians, meaning that they have basically given up on their faith. And then he gives nine characteristics of what that looks like. But that's what happens. People become disillusioned. They don't see the value. They don't see the benefit. It's just a matter of going through the motions. 
And so now the priests say that their worship is in vain. You have said it's vain to serve God. What's the profit of keeping his charge? They were right when they said there was no profit in their religious service. However, they were wrong to blame God. The fault was not to be found in God. The fault was to be found in them. John MacArthur uh, wrote uh, this, this book. Uh, this is not on the sheet, but uh, entitled Our Sufficiency in Christ. And he basically talks about the sufficiency of Christ's atoning work. He talks about the sufficiency of Scripture. He talks about uh, basically the fundamentals of the faith. He has, in the middle of the book, a statement. He was doing a seminar on the sufficiency of the scriptures, and he talks about this conversation he had. Titles it, A Blueprint for Disaster. Once at a pastor's conference, a man asked me, what's the real secret of Grace Community Church's vitality and growth? I said, the clear and forceful teaching of the word. I was shocked when he countered, don't give me that. I tried it and it doesn't work. What is the real secret? MacArthur goes on to say, I knew enough about that pastor to be certain if you asked him whether he believed in the sufficiency of scripture, he would have said yes. But what he professes to believe doesn't work its way into his philosophy of ministry. He presumes that to build his church effectively, he needs some gimmick, an inventive strategy, or a more up-to-date methodology. He is trying to supplement the imagined inadequacies of God's word, probably without realizing it. He has concluded that the Bible alone is an inadequate resource for ministry, and he's looking for something else to fill the gap. See, we need to realize that there is often a tremendous dichotomy between what people say and what people do, between what they profess and then how they act. For example, the majority of Christians say that the Bible is the inspired, infallible word of God. They believe it's God's word. They believe it's infallible. They believe it's inerrant. That's the majority of Christians say that. Less than 10% of Christians have ever read their Bible through. You see, that's a tremendous dichotomy. This is God's word. It is without error. It is trustworthy. It's authority. But they don't read it. This is the exact mentality of the Israelites. God is saying, look at these things. And they say, what do you mean? What do you mean? This doesn't describe us. How have we robbed you? How have we said these things? When did we say it was in vain? So we need to realize that it's commonplace that there is a tremendous uh, dichotomy between what people profess and how people really conduct themselves. Moving on. The people and priests have said there's no value in repentance. Malachi 3.14, you have said it is vain to serve God. 
What's the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking in mourning before the Lord of hosts? Now, in mourning, there is talking about in uh, sackcloth, ashes, in weeping and being sorrow for their sins. They're saying, we, we were sorry for our sins. Where has that gotten us? Again, this is a recapitulation. We're coming to the end of Malachi, and it's all coming together, all the previous sections. So notice Malachi 2.13. And this second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. So they come and they're weeping and they're crying and they are miserable. But they're not repenting. They're not changing. They are not acting any differently. They are miserable in the way in which they're living, but they do nothing about it except to complain to God about their misery. Now notice, A, they weep and they are sorrowful, but they are not truly repentant. That is, they do not change their behavior and conduct. Therefore, they are right. Their repentance in consisting of sorrow and weeping is meaningless. They need to change to see the benefit. Repentance is meaningless, but the fault does not lie with God, but with them. Application. Here's the New Testament example of this, this truth. Paul is writing to the Corinthians. He has rebuked them for uh, the open sinfulness that was being manifested in the church in the first letter of Corinthians. They have repented. Now notice what he says about this repentance. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, for I see that you have See that that letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. But notice, you were grieved into repenting. The grieving wasn't the repenting. The grieving was the motivation to repent. For you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. So that there are two different kinds of grief or sorrow over sin. There is a worldly sorrow over sin in which I regret all that this sin has brought into my life. I regret the misery, I regret the heartache, I wish that I wasn't going through this, or I can be sorry for its effect upon my family, and I can weep and cry at night because everybody's unhappy and it's miserable, and I hate life, and we can say I'd rather die than live like this, and we can be downright miserable. And never really seek the forgiveness of God or the empowerment of his spirit to make things right, to change, to put things in order. Godly sorrow, this misery, heartache, leads to people changing, 
leads to people seeking God's deliverance, seeking God's help, seeking God's blessing on their life and the joy that comes as a result. So don't ever confuse people who are sorry for what they've done with people that are truly repentant for what they have done, unless that sorrow leads to a change in lifestyle and relationship with God. But the person who is sorry and is laying awake at night and crying and doesn't change can't look at God and say, God, what's wrong with you? My life is still a mess. I've been weeping, I've been crying, and maybe even calling out to you, but not really seeking to change or to recognize your authority. That is empty, meaningless, religious practice. It's not gonna benefit. It's not gonna be fulfilling. It's not gonna be joyful. Fourthly, the people had said the wicked were better off than they were. And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. Again, this is reflective of an earlier portion. You have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? Why doesn't God make things right? They're complaining. Well, they failed to see the distinction between the godly and the wicked. And uh, this is actually the foundation for the next section. So, Uh, next week is Fellowship Sunday, so the week after, we're going to look at this in much greater detail. Where is the God of justice? And we're going to see what the Word of God has to say about that. But here, again, the idea is dissatisfaction. Dissatisfaction. Unhappiness with their religiosity. A lack of confidence in prayer. A lack of confidence in the Word of God. Uh, what goes around comes around. Uh, Malachi is a very relevant book for us today. People have lost confidence in the scriptures. Oh, they aren't going to say that out loud. Oh, some people do. <laughs> there, there are liberals that, that attack the authority of scripture, the inspiration of scripture, but not among evangelicals. We're not going to say that. Instead, we'll just put it on the shelf. Instead of making it the focal point of our our service, we'll do something else. But we really aren't going to be naive enough to think that preaching the the word of God today is going to be of much help or significance or relevant to people. We've got to find something that, that that is more in tune with our society and our culture if we're really going to have an impact on our Society is the, is, the, is the point today. And so people will say, I believe in the inspiration of Scripture. And don't read it through. 
And this isn't just a matter of reading it through. According to Barna, 50% have not read it more than three times last year. There are a lot of Christians that just don't ever crack the pages. Is it any wonder, is it any wonder if they never crack the pages that they don't care that they're not hearing from it from the pulpit? You see how it goes hand in hand. You see how it feeds each other. If they're not hearing it from the pulpit and coming under conviction, and if they're not reading it from the scripture and finding fault with the pulpit, it just is a downward spiral of the lack of hearing of the word of God, which results in a very unsatisfied life where people are making all kinds of moral decisions and don't even realize many times that what they are doing is not in keeping with the will of God. According to Barna, the majority of evangelicals think that living together before you're married is a good way to find out if you are compatible with your spouse. Let me say that again. Majority of evangelicals believe that living together before you're married is a good way to find out if you're compatible with your spouse. I expect the world to say that. I expect our culture to say that. I don't expect the evangelical church to say that. How does that happen? You have to leave the Bible in the dust. And that's exactly what is happening. And people are just doing that which is right in their own eyes. And they're listening to all the voices that come from the talk shows and from all the how-to books and all the pop psychology. And unfortunately, they're not even hearing it from the pulpit. And if they do hear it from the pulpit, only one-third of the people believe that the pastor is a valuable source for moral instruction. You can't, I hope, and, and maybe that's part of the problem, you know, with people reading their Bible through. I hope that when you get to passages like this, you just don't shake your head at the Israelites, but, but you st stop and try to understand how could a people get to that place? And what in our culture, what in our day does this passage speak to? A lot of people are disillusioned with Christianity. A lot of people are disillusioned with their faith. There are a lot of people questioning, is there any value in serving the Lord? Is there any benefit to seeking to live differently? The problem's not with God. The problems with us. So let us at least guard ourselves in finding fault with God. And let us look to ourselves. Let us look to our worship. Let us look to our obedience. Let us look to what we say and then look at what we do. 
and see so often the inconsistencies that lead to the sadness and misery that we experience in our lives. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you for your word. We believe it to be the inspired, inerrant, authoritative word of God. Lord, may we not give lip service to that truth, but Lord, may it be manifest in the way in which we submit ourselves to your word, the way in which we seek your word for instruction in righteousness, in godliness, in holiness. O Lord, may your word be the lamp unto our feet, the light unto our path. May we make our moral decisions. May we make our business decisions. May we make the decisions in our rearing of our children from the incredible wisdom in Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and your word in general. Lord, help us to see the value of your word. And though we may not say it publicly, Lord, may it not even be in the innermost recesses of our hearts to say, well, I've tried reading the word and I get nothing from it and think there's no value in it. But Lord, help us to see that we need to study it more fully. We need to give ourselves to it more completely. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you, and you are dismissed.